The episode you're about to listen to was released back when the Mere Christians podcast was called The Call to Mastery. Now, if you love Mere Christians, you're still going to love these older episodes because the majority of each conversation focuses on how the gospel influences the work of our guests. With that disclaimer out of the way, please enjoy the episode. Hey everybody, welcome to The Call to Mastery. I'm Jordan Rayner. This is a podcast for Christians who want to do their most exceptional work for the glory of God and the good of others. Every week, I bring you a conversation with a Christ follower who's pursuing world-class mastery of their craft. We talk about their path to mastery, their daily habits and routines, and how the gospel of Jesus Christ influences the work they do in the world. Today's guest was so much fun having on the show. His name is Nate Knapper. He's a federal law enforcement officer focused on human trafficking and counterterrorism. He's also the founder and CEO of the Joseph Project, which connects victims of human trafficking to pro bono legal services. Nate and I sat down. This guy's got a crazy impressive resume. We talked a little bit about that. He was a White House intern, a Pepperdine law grad, assistant attorney general to the state of Michigan. So we talked about his background. We talked about our shared experiences as White House interns and the time that I bold face lied to President George W. Bush's face. That was a fun one. Glad I got that one off my chest. We also talked about the biblical narrative of Joseph and how that story reveals a God of the pits and the palaces. And we also talked about why the never-ending work, never-ending to-do lists, right? To-do lists that are never going to be accomplished before the kingdom is fully manifest on earth is actually more inspiring than finite work. I think you're going to love this episode with my new friend, Nate Knapper. Nate Knapper, thanks for joining us. Jordan, thank you for having me. So I was doing some research on you, and I noticed you and I share a line item in our resumes. We were both White House interns. Same administration. You were there 2008? No kidding. Yeah. So I was there in the summer of 2008. So that would have been the tail end of the W. Bush administration. And I was there fall of 06. So also in the W. administration. So I got to ask, you've got to have a great White House internship story, right? Like what's the best, what's the best story you've got? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I could share one of those with you, Jordan. So, you know, it's funny and maybe you've done this yourself, but somewhere along the course of your employment there, one of the things that they like to do, it's a very nice thing, is they will gather you as a group of interns and they'll give you several minutes with the president. And uh, it's an opportunity for you to, to take a picture with him and, and the vice president as well. At that time, it was Dick Cheney. And so, you know, the day came and we, we dressed in our best suits and we, we had a, a few minutes to ask President Bush some questions. And we all took our photos and later we received a, a signed copy of it from Bush and, uh, and from Cheney. Yeah, I've got one in my office. I got the same picture. Yeah. It's a beautiful photo. They do it very well. It's in the East Room of the White House and it's it's staged beautifully. But so so the story is, I mean, all that's by way of preface. So my parents had the, the beautiful idea that they would put it in a very nice frame for me 
and they would give it to me as a as a Christmas gift one year. And uh, I thought that was that was very nice. And uh, so they take it to to Michael's, which is like a local store where you can buy frames here in in the Detroit area. So the the people at Michael's, you know, they they put it into a frame and uh, they seal it up in the back. And they realize when they flip it over that it's a bit cockeyed. So what they want to do is they, they want to readjust it. And so to do that, you know, you have to you have to take a razor and you have to reopen the the back of the of the frame. And so, you know, they they do that. They grab a razor, they reopen it in an attempt to to kind of center it on the glass. And and when they did that, they sliced it in an X. <laughs> this is a picture signed a very by, by Bush and Michael store, right? <laughs> well, you know, I don't know what the disposition is, but but it came back. And to their credit, Michaels actually called the White House switchboard because That's they were amazing. so horrified, and they said. Look, this is what just happened. Can can you help? And they said, no, the intern has to come, you know, direct to us. And fortunately, they were able to get me a new one before Bush left office. So I do have a new copy. I was thankful for that. That's a great story. So ironically, <laughs> one of my favorite White House stories is exactly the same scenario. It has to do with the picture with the president. So as you said, they take a picture with every class. So I I assumed when I heard that President Bush and Vice President Cheney were going to take a picture that they would like hang out and answer questions, whatever. And so me being the perennial suck up, I asked my boss, I was like, hey, what's a question that I can ask President Bush that he'll like just really get a kick out of, like really love answering? And my boss is like, Oh, little intern, you're so naive. The president's not going to stay and take your questions. I was like, right, right, right. But if he does, I want to be prepared. He's like, fine. Ask him about the bust of Winston Churchill in the Oval Office. Do you know the story behind this? I don't. You got to give it to me. All right. All right. So he's like, I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but the president loves talking about the bust of Winston Churchill. I was like, great. So sure enough, president and vice president come in. The vice president leaves immediately after they snap the picture and the president gets up there and he's like, hey, yeah, I told the vice president to go back to work, but I'm going to answer some of your questions. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's amazing. So I shoot my hand up. I'm the short guy in the front row. And he calls out a couple of other people first. And finally, he calls on me and I boldly I boldface lied to the president of the United States. I said, uh, Mr. President. I've noticed, like I've personally been in the Oval Office and noticed, I've noticed you got this bust of Winston Churchill in the Oval Office. And I'm really curious what the significance of that, you know, he's a foreign leader, whatever. And the president, President Bush looks down at the ground and goes, hey, 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 thanks for asking. And looked at me, winked at me, and then went on this tirade of how much he loves Churchill and the significance of it. It was the best. He had, a, he had such a ball. And I just felt like an awesome line suck up to President Bush. So W loved you. He totally loved you. He for dug that. it. He dug it. And so yeah, it was interesting. He was um this was right after some other kid in our class asked why we hadn't pulled trips out of Iraq yet. I'm like, come on, dude. Uh you're you're talking you're talking to uh you're talking to the president. You're asking political questions. But yeah, he went into this long spiel about how Churchill was hated. While he was in office and was driven out of power, but history remembers him very fondly. And obviously, you could 
read through the tea leaves as to what the president was saying, what he was sure, expecting sure. for his own legacy. But yeah, it was cool. What an awesome experience. That's fantastic. Well, I'm glad that's an experience that that you and I got to share. It's <laughs> definitely one of my more memorable ones. And I'll always remember it. It was a beautiful time of life. It's a really fun time of life. So you've had a crazy, impressive career from that point forward. You clerked at the Department of Energy, assistant AG for the state of Michigan. Talk to us a little bit about the role you have today with the FBI. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned some of the past roles that I have had in build up to the Bureau because I, I really see those as building blocks and foundational to what I do today. So just for the, the benefit of the, the listening audience, I do serve as a special agent for the FBI in our Detroit division. Of course, we have many field offices all around the country. I happen to be in Detroit. And uh, so my, my work is investigative in nature. When you are an agent of the Bureau, you are investigating violations of the federal laws. And uh, typically, we work on squads at the Bureau. And so initially, when I graduated from the FBI Academy at Quantico, it's a real place down in Virginia. It's on a- Not uh, just a TV show. Not just a bad TV show. We're still <laughs> right, all right, trying right. to forget a that A terrible here. TV show, yeah. <laughs> but, but nonetheless, you know, it is sort of a real place where you go and, and you train and, and then you, you come out and you know, you're, you're placed on assignment. So for me, after I graduated, I was placed in Detroit and I was put on the human trafficking squad to begin my career- and I currently serve on what we would call internally here the JTTF or the Joint Terrorism Task Force. So that's what I do now. Hmm. Is there a difference between an agent and a special agent of the FBI? <laughs> you know, I'm a special guy, Jordan. I, right, I, you're, you're, you I can tell you're a special guy, Nate, but break this down for us. I don't understand. Yeah, at least that's what my mother tells <laughs> right, me. Right, right, Well, no, there, there's not is the short answer. You know, we're all- But special all agent sounds way cooler. It's way cooler. It's on the business card. And if you say it, your cred might boost with somebody. But yeah. but no, an agent, a special <laughs> agent, it's all, it's all the same. It's right? all the same. All right. Yeah. So you're doing this work with the FBI for the last few years. You're also the founder of this nonprofit called The Joseph Project. Tell us what the Joseph Project is, and then I'm curious if the FBI had a role in your experience that the FBI had a role in the founding of this organization. Sure. So you know, I should I should begin by clarifying that the Joseph Project is a is a separate legal entity from the Bureau. So the Bureau does not endorse the project in any way. But with that understanding, I would say yes, my FBI experiences certainly informed the founding of the organization. And and again, just for the benefit of the audience, the Joseph Project is a, a nonprofit. It's based in Detroit, but increasingly we're we're seeing cases referred to us from many states around the country. And the idea is that you would provide pro bono legal services to survivors of human trafficking because we recognize that when a survivor comes out of exploitation, they have what we would call legal collateral damage. They have all these legal issues that build up over time. And, and so lawyers can help them overcome those challenges. But uh, you know, I was exposed to some of those legal hurdles in the course of my work, you mentioned the state of Michigan Attorney General's office. I had the opportunity to, to work on human trafficking issues there. And then, of course, when you're on the FBI's task force in Detroit, you have an opportunity to sort of see the issue from a, from a frontline enforcement perspective. And among other things, when you're recovering a survivor from 
a hotel, a car, a, a private home, wherever it happens to be, you're sort of immediately pulling them out of the, the circumstances of that danger. But then you're exposed later on down the road to, to those legal issues that if they don't receive assistance with, they're going to continue to struggle. So the, the Joseph Project was a separate effort in an attempt to resolve some of those issues and help survivors move forward into a bright future. Hmm. Was there a particular case that you're able to talk about publicly that kind of sparked this desire and this vision for the Joseph Project? Yes. And by that, I'm taking you to mean the case of a survivor. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, of course. You know, when I think of the project, it's tied to the story of a, a young woman named Delyn, who I know is comfortable with me sharing her story. So I, I would never share without her permission, but I know she'll be comfortable. She was an individual that I met at a church service of all places at my local church here in, in Michigan. And, uh, you know, she was a survivor. She shared her story on stage in front of thousands of people. And it was a horrific story of exploitation over the course of many years on the streets of Detroit. And it, uh, it culminated in a circumstance that uh, was among the most violent and the most vicious that I've ever heard of. And she was stabbed, I think, nine times. Her jaw was broken. Her exploiter attempted to drown her in a bathtub and then spoke of burning her alive. And when he assaulted her this way. She had all of these physical injuries, of course, and uh, she was on the verge of death. She was going to die right there in his house. And uh, he ended up taking her to a local hospital and dumping her on the doorstep and, and driving away. And Delyn made a full recovery, thankfully. But what ended up happening is that she was charged for the medical bills that, that were associated with her treatment. And she didn't know anything about that. You know, she was just seeking to, to get better and to, to exit the hospital. But she was later sued for the expenses associated with her treatment. And uh, she didn't have an attorney to help her resolve those things. And so she came to us in, in some level of distress. And, and she said, you know, I don't, I don't know what to do here. And being an attorney, I identified for her, Delyn, you really need, you need legal counsel here to help you resolve what's in front of you. And she, of course, doesn't have the means or the knowledge to secure that type of help. And so I was able to, to help her find lawyers who would help her free of charge, pro bono. Matt and Amanda Pallets are their names. They're incredible lawyers here in the state of Michigan. And in short, they resolved everything for Delyn the way that it should have been resolved. And the hospital was even compensated for the services that were rendered. And everybody kind of came out the way that they should. And it exposed to me the power of leveraging the law to empower the enslaved, which is the, the, the eventual slogan of the Joseph Project. So that's, that's what we were able to do for Delyn. And uh, she's still a, a great friend of mine today, doing extremely well, by the way. That's amazing. What an incredible story. And obviously, organization kind of founded to try to create more of those stories. So I'm assuming this is named after Joseph of the Bible. How did the life of Joseph influence your vision for this work? Where do you see the connection with Joseph and this fight against human trafficking and providing support for those who have been trafficked? 
It is. Yes. The, the very famous Bible story from the biblical book of Genesis, and I'm sure your audience will know it well, but the connection to, to Joseph himself is that Joseph was the textbook definition of a human trafficking survivor. So, you know, if you know the story, I'm sure many do, he was sold into Egyptian slavery by his own brothers. So, you know, here we would say in legal terms that he was commercially exploited for labor services through force. So his brothers traffic him to Egypt. He is sold into the home of an Egyptian captain named Potiphar, does very well, is named the head of the household, essentially the lead servant. Uh, so he's a domestic servant. And then he's falsely accused of sexual assault. He's wrongly incarcerated, no due process, rises to become second in command of the entire nation of Egypt after interpreting a dream for the Pharaoh. So an incredible turnaround story, but all of it from a survivor of trafficking whose circumstances God worked out for good in the end. It's a beautiful story. Hmm. I noticed on the website, the phone number for the Joseph Project is one 855 gen of course, spelling out Genesis. Yes. 5020, which you borderline just quoted, right? Uh, Joseph's talking to his brothers and he said, you, know, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, right? The saving of lies, right? That's God right. used Joseph to help end this famine, right? So as you've mined the depths of Genesis, what is it, 37-ish through 50 in the life of Joseph, what have you pulled out of that that's relevant to your work? Absolutely. Well, it's the notion that hope is never truly lost uh, if you stay in faith and if you persevere. And you said it, Genesis 5020. And by the way, it is the phone number, uh, GEN 5020. That was the precise idea. And the message is central to the entire story. And, and I would even argue to the story of God and, and his relationship with human beings. We go through many very difficult things in life. And those things are, are unique to every person. And they can be very devastating and challenging sometimes. But the beautiful truth, the timeless truth that the Bible has been telling us from the very beginning. This is the book of Genesis, the beginning. It's telling you, if you stay in faith, if you persevere, what people and circumstances mean for evil, God has the unique, amazing ability to turn all around for good. It's uncanny. He's very good at it. He's been doing it a long time, and he can do it in a moment. And it's unbelievable. And Joseph is just one of many examples for whom he has done that. Amen. I was meditating on this passage a couple of weeks ago, writing a devotional on it. And a couple of things stood out to me. You know, first is is really what you just said, that regardless of the actions of sinful human beings, God's purposes will never be thwarted, to quote Job. And Job 42, I think it is, right? Like, Everything will one all the sad things will come untrue, as Tolkien said in Lord of the Rings. And the second thing that really sticks out to me in the story of Joseph is that God chooses to use our work, our vocations, in this case, the work of Joseph, this government official, to accomplish his purposes in the world, right? God could have ended the famine with a miracle. 
right? He could have just sent manna raining from the sky, whatever, but he didn't. Like all throughout scripture from Genesis 1 until today, we see God choosing to work in the world primarily through the faithfulness of his people. And I I would argue what you're doing right now, Nate, is a pretty darn good example of that, right? Human exploitation has no place in the kingdom of God, but he's working through you and other people to do that redemptive work. I think Joseph's a really beautiful, beautiful picture of that. It, it certainly is. And you know what's interesting, Jordan, is I think about the story in the context of your podcast, The, the Call to Mastery. And you know, you're know, you absolutely right that very often when God wants to do something in the world, he is choosing a person in order to affect or accomplish that work. But what's fascinating is many, many times when you read sort of the big ticket stories of the Bible. So, I mean, you could point to to many of them, Moses, David, Joseph, Daniel, there's so many others that you could point to. But these are men and women that have been prepared for the future that they dreamed about. And very often through a series of very, very difficult challenges and tests and hardships that they have had to pass. So it is God's way, or at least one of his ways that he accomplishes his big agendas for the world is to choose a person and then to train them and to, and to train them over time to make them a master of whatever scenario he wants them to master for his glory. Hmm. Amen. Very, very well said. And so frequently throughout scripture, I mean, you just saw it in the list of names you rattled off, Moses, David, Daniel. He chooses the weak things, the foolish things, the inadequate to accomplish his purposes so that he, not us, will get the glory, right? Like I was thinking about David the other day. David was just a shepherd, right? He was just some random shepherd, you know, running out there in the fields, chasing sheep. And God's like, yeah, yeah, that's that's my king so that I can get the glory. It's not the tall one. It's not the strong one. And through your weakness, I will be shown as great and strong. I think it's beautiful. So, hey, Nate, you guys are executing against this massive problem of human trafficking, not just there in Michigan, but you know, across the country, a problem that likely we will not see solved until the kingdom is fully manifest on earth as it is in heaven. I can imagine that can be frustrating, right? To work so hard at a problem and still see so much sin, so much pain, so much trafficking in this world. How how do you maintain contentment in that with, with the fruit that God is producing in your work, knowing that it's not the ultimate fruit that you want to see? Yeah, I, you know, I think that that's a good question. And and if, you know, if the book of Genesis and the story of Joseph tell us anything, it's that that human trafficking is a problem that's existed as as old as time. And to your point, I I'm not under an illusion that that I'm the the one to end it. I I expect candidly that that it will continue. But you talk about maintaining contentment and maybe I would add to that just maintaining hope in the face of such a giant obstacle. And you know what I think is interesting, Jordan. I, I think of an answer that that Scott Harrison, the the founder of Charity Water, one of my favorite uh, people. He, I mean, he's just an incredible guy. It's an amazing story. Uh, it's a global nonprofit that does incredible work all around the world. But he he has talked in the past about the fact that 
endless work used to scare him, but now it inspires him. And it, it doesn't cause him to shy away the fact that he will maybe never end the water crisis in his lifetime. And similarly with me, even though trafficking might not be quote unquote solved in my lifetime, what what I would argue and what what I believe Scott argues is that if you find yourself in a position where you are staring down the barrel of endless work, what that really means is that you have found a passion that you could give your life to. And I think that's a beautiful thing. I, I think to find something that could energize you and inspire you to, to get up and to keep working and to keep going every day, uh, that's a beautiful gift. And I think on some level, it's something to be treasured instead of something to be balked at. So, so I actually view it as a positive thing in a way. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, my mission is to inspire every Christian to do their most exceptional work for the glory of God and the good of others. I love that. And what I love about that is like, it can't be finished. Like just by nature of populations growing, right? And changing. Yes. It's an infinite game, right? And that requires me to think with a longer time horizon than the next book or whatever and try to build an organization that could carry out that work forever. It's also humbling just to recognize that, yeah, that's the mission I think God has called me to, but I'm going to die at some point and uh, I'm going to have to trust the Lord to continue that work when I'm gone, right? He's going to find somebody else to pick up the baton because frankly, I'm not special, right? And he can choose anybody to accomplish his work in the world. I read this great John Piper quote the other day that I loved. It was kind of buried in another book. He said, my job is faithfulness. God's job is fruitfulness. I've been thinking about that and quoting that a lot since I read it a couple of months ago, because I think that's spot on. A lot of times, like we want to take responsibility for fruitfulness. And yeah, that's just not what scripture teaches us. Like we just got to be faithful. We got to see problems in the world, engage them, try to solve them with the hope that one day all things will be new uh, when the kingdom comes to earth. And uh, yeah, God's going to produce that fruit. I don't know. That's encouraging to me. Right, that that's hopeful. It's not hoping in our work; it's hoping in His ultimate work. Does that make sense? It sure does. I mean, it, you could you could point to the tail end of the book of John, Jesus uh, speaking to His disciples: "If you abide in Me, you'll bear much fruit." And uh, so the fruit comes in in Jesus, and He's He's supremely capable of of growing the fruit that that He wishes, the fruit of the Spirit, right? Galatians, it will it will populate uh, according to the will of God. I promise you that. Yeah, well said. Hey, we already talked through some of your resume. You got some pretty impressive credentials. Clearly, you have high standards of excellence in your work. I'm curious if you see a connection between your faith and that commitment to excellence, or are those kind of two separate things for you? No, no, they're, they're intertwined. And, and by the way, I should lead by saying you're absolutely right. I do live my life, or at least attempt to, according to principles of excellence. And my team members at the Joseph Project are well aware of that, and they give it to me, and I respect them and, and love them for that. But, but excellence is, is certainly my posture toward my daily work. And you know, I think that that's primarily the case because your your work is a reflection of you, and 
if you purport to be a person of faith, which I certainly do, your your work is ultimately also a reflection of the person or the entity in whom you have faith. In my case, it would be it would be God. It would be Jesus. And it, it's interesting when you read the scriptures, you, you get a profound sense that God is deserving of that kind of excellent effort. You know, you, you could read in the Old Testament. It says, "Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is what do." his name. Take it to the end of the scriptures, the book of Revelation. You you have people saying, what worthy are you, Lord, to receive glory, honor, power, and the like. And so there's a sense in which God is worthy and he is due something from us by virtue of his position. And I and I think that that thing is is excellence, and and I'm I'm happy to give that uh, because I think it's the only appropriate response to to a God that great. It's our spiritual act of worship. That's what being a living sacrifice looks like. Like work is not a means of serving us. It's meant to be poured out sacrificially on behalf of others and and in service of God's great glory, and thus we have a greater standard for excellence, I think, right? And I, I don't see anywhere in scripture where God demands that we achieve excellence, but I do think he is honored and glorified and smiles upon the pursuit of mastery, the pursuit of excellence, right? Because that is a form of worship, right? It was interesting. I was reading through Paul's letters again and man, Paul talks so much about working hard, right? He says he strenuously contended with all the energy he had. He left it all on the field, right? All of it. Even Jesus said he glorified the Father by finishing the work the Father gave him to do. It's like, yeah, that's what we're called to, that pursuit of mastery, that pursuit of excellence for his glory. Hey, I want to ask you about something else. You know, it's interesting to me in a field like yours that through clearly through God's grace, there's plenty of non-Christians working to end human trafficking, right? You mentioned Scott Harrison. There's plenty of non-Christians working to end the water crisis in the world. But I'm, I am curious what you think, and we should celebrate that clearly, right? I am curious what you think is distinct or different about your approach to this work because you are a follower of Christ. Yeah, that's a good question. What what makes it distinct? And I think, you know, if if I wasn't a person of faith, I think that the work would would ultimately be devoid of a lot of the intrinsic meaning behind it. And and what I mean by that is this. You know, if you're able to resolve a legal issue for an exploited individual, I suspect that that person is going to be very happy about that. And on some level, maybe you will be too. And the attorney who gave them the aid will will feel some sense of accomplishment. But if you are stopping there, then what I think that you're running into is what my pastor here locally, Chris Brooks, an amazing pastor at Woodside Bible Church, you're running up against what he would call sentimental humanitarianism, where you're doing good just, just for the sake of doing it. But But when you infuse faith into the picture... What we are trying to do through the Joseph Project is use or leverage the good works to introduce you to a much larger point of hope. And that point of hope is is found in the, the narrative that we've already talked about. You meant evil, God meant good. If you can believe that even the difficulties in your life can be reweaved for a higher, better purpose 
by a God who actually loves you and is not against you, he's for you, then that's a gift that you can give somebody that actually has a deeper level of meaning than if you were to just resolve their legal issue, you know, handle their criminal record, reunite them with their child, and send them on their way. I, I think a lot of the meaning would be uh, lost if you did it without faith. Yeah, it, it's like an entirely different plane of hope. Hey, you, you've spent your career in public service. I'm curious what you think world-class public servants do that their less masterful counterparts don't do? Like within the context of government, civil service, like what's the delta between good and great? Yeah, that's that's a good question. And, and you know, I think in its in its purest sense, I mean, you mentioned public service. So I suppose the, the ones that excel at it and do it the best, and, and I'm talking, you know, specifically about that, that lens of public service. I, I, I guess I would say that um, those who are, are truly excellent at it, those, those who you would think of as being, you know, in an upper echelon or being the best, I, I think that they, uh, they, they have a commitment to the, the, the good and the well-being and the best interests of others as opposed to themselves. I think that we've seen lots of examples um, and, and they're well documented in the news, and we see them all the time, uh, of people who are, are elected officials or, or public servants of some nature. But, um, but, but it's clear that they were in it for their own devices, right? And, uh, and the, the narrative story that's being reported to you bears that out. Uh, but I think in, in its truest sense, public service is, is something that's done for the good of, of the citizenry, for the good of other people. It's done in and service think, of the public, ideally. That, that, that's right. exactly right. And that's, I think, where it, at least where it begins. I, I think that you have to have that posture as a starting point, at least. I'm, I'm sure you spend a ton of time reading through the story of Joseph. What do you think made him really stand out to the Pharaoh? Like, what, what, what do you think was made Joseph distinct there? Well, it, it, you know, what's interesting is you mentioned what made him stand out in the eyes of the Pharaoh. So I, I'll just give you the Pharaoh's answer because I, I have happened to read it. And and the Pharaoh would say, where can we find another person like this in whom is the spirit of God? So that's what that's what stood out to Pharaoh because that's what Pharaoh said before the council of his advisors about Joseph. And what's interesting is all along the way, what you see is that Joseph goes from bad to worse. His circumstances go down, down, down. But at every step, the Bible is very careful to point out one, one commonality among all the circumstances that he dealt with. And that's, it's simple. God was with Joseph. <laughs> he's with him in Potiphar's house. He's with him in the pit. He's with him in the prison. He's with him in the palace. He's with him everywhere he goes. And Pharaoh picks up on that. Isn't it fascinating? He says, where can we find another person like this? The spirit of God is with this one. So I'm going to put you second in command. Isn't that fascinating? Hey, Nate, I'm curious. You're clearly a productive guy. You got a very demanding day job and you got this nonprofit that's growing, like what does your day look like typically uh, from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough question. And the reason why it's tough is because, you know, my days can look very different depending on the nature of my, my FBI related activities. So what I mean is, you know, oftentimes we'll, we'll be 
in different circumstances day to day. So, you know, whether it's conducting an operation, whether a search or an arrest operation, or you know, sometimes we'll do surveillance activities. I've been talking, I've been talking to more people who have these types of roles, right? Where the middle of their day never yeah. looks the same because it's so dependent on for you caseload or for a sales executive, you know, what pitches they have coming up that day. So the middle is real messy, not not messy, but just inconsistent. I'm yeah. curious if the wrapper is tight and consistent. Like, do you have the same morning and evening rituals? Yeah. You know, that's, that's maybe a little bit easier to answer. So, so perhaps, you know, I could give you maybe some, some habits or some yeah. best practices that kind of bookend the days. Yeah. I'd love that. You know, so I think that uh, Jordan, honestly, so my commute, the, the car for me has become something of an inner sanctum because I, I know that it's quiet. I know that it's just me and I can answer my phone or choose not to answer my phone if I wish. And uh, it, it's a it's a time where I can embrace some of the silence of the day before things get crazy and and sometimes out of control. So I I think that it's good to make a habit of carving out at least some time. It doesn't have to be in the car, but you know, some time to just to just enjoy some silence and you can use it to pray, you could use it to listen to a uh, listen to a podcast, listen to Jordan Rayner. Um, you could you could use it no, to listen to a No, use it for silence. I'm so glad you brought this up. Uh, cuz I I yeah. just I I'm publishing a book in October called Redeeming Your Time. And the early reader's favorite chapter is a chapter called Descent from the Kingdom of Noise. And it's all about this idea that Jesus spent a phenomenal amount of time, if you believe the gospel accounts, in solitude, in lonely places. And I would argue there's almost nothing rarer today then silence, solitude, time to think, time to pray, time to listen to God's voice. So if you've got a commute like Nate, don't listen to my podcast. Uh, spend that time in <laughs> don't silence. Listen to it. Don't listen All to right. it. Turn it off right now. Yeah, no, you know, and Jordan, I guess, you know, just one other point, I guess I would add, there are people, not not just at the Bureau, these people are, are everywhere. And I think our culture conditions us in a way to, to be like this. But, you know, there, there are people who view lunch and, and grabbing a bite to eat as as something to be shunned or, or looked down on in some way, and and I actually I actually view things just the opposite. I I, I think that uh, you you should prioritize health and eating and and carving out some time to nourish your physical body because I think in the end that will that will take you a lot farther than if you just try to go 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 until you crash. So you know in terms of another habit. I, I say unashamedly, very openly, that I, I do take a lunch hour and I, I try to to actually eat during that time. It's it's important to me to get the, the nourishment. I love that. That's really good. Two basic routines, but critically important. Yeah. All right. Hey, Nate, I got three questions we wrap up every conversation with. Really curious, which books on the regular do you find recommending or maybe gifting to other people? Yeah, which books are good? You know, Jordan. So, uh, have you heard of Squire Rushnell? Do you know the Godwinks series? No. All right. So, so for the listeners and and for you, Godwinks is a great series, and and I think there's several of them now that that Squire Rushnell uh, has produced, and and he does them uh, oftentimes in in coordination with his his wife Louise Duart. But 
they are very simple. They are compilations of stories that recount for people these moments where God appears to be giving the people involved a direct, specifically tailored reminder, some kind of message that he sees them and it's going to be okay. And it's a simple, straightforward structure. So they're, again, they're just story compilations. And, and what Squire Rushnell does is he'll, he'll weave in his commentary in between the stories. But it's a beautiful concept. And what I love about it is that he's not, um, he's not a theologian. He's not a pastor. He is a, a former TV executive who did, you know, GMA stuff and Schoolhouse Rock. And I just think that, um, I think that if there's a listener out there that is wondering whether or not God sees you and understands what you're going through, Godwinks will assure you that he does and it's going to be okay. All right. Hey, who would you most like to hear on this podcast talking about how their faith influences their work in the world? You're going to get your next guest from me. Interesting uh, question. That's right. <laughs> um, well, so... Boy, a person that really jumps to mind immediately. Ha- have you heard, or, or maybe you know, Erwin uh, McManus? Do you know him? I do. I, I don't know him well, but we've exchanged a few messages, and I love Erwin McManus. Yeah, that's right. a great answer. So if, if, you, if you're able to, if he's agreeable, I really would recommend Erwin McManus. He's one of the best speakers I've ever heard in my life. And for context, for the, for the listeners, he's a, um, he's a pastor of a church in LA called Mosaic, but his speeches are laced with very creative and, and also some entrepreneurial themes. And so he's, he's a very creative guy. And the reason, Jordan, that, that I would recommend him for, for this particular show is he recently engaged in a in a very brief sermon series or a, you know a series of conversations as he would call them out in LA and he called it self mastery and you know the the basic notion is that that we have a responsibility before we master you know any sort of craft whether that's music or a sport or or public service or anything like, like that we we have a responsibility to master ourselves so take ownership of your decisions your emotions your physical body i think that on the call to mastery erwin mcmanus would have a lot to say in terms of fleshing out the conversation on the personal side i love that it, remi- it reminds me of paul uh talking about exercising self-discipline in yes. everything did you read erwin manis's book it's, it's almost a decade old now called the artisan soul yes yeah yes, it's I a did. great book I-, I read that when i was researching my first book called the great all right last question nate what's one thing from our conversation today that you want to reiterate, highlight for our listeners before we sign off? If there's one thing you want them to take from this conversation, what is it? Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, again, I'm, I'm thinking about the context of the show and, and the premise, the call to mastery. And, and how about this, Jordan? Because we, because we started with, with W, let's just end with W because I – and we didn't discuss this ahead of time. I promise no, no, that we did No, this didn't. is not planned. Yeah, no, a totally unplanned. But I also, during my session where we got to uh, be with the president, I, I also asked George W. Bush a question. This is amazing. What did you ask him? 
Yeah, yeah. So I, I actually had the same opportunity that you did. And I asked him, President Bush, you're, you're known as a person of faith. How do you prioritize your faith in the midst of such a demanding, busy schedule? And I will never forget his answer. And I think it is informative for anybody that aspires to master the calling in their own life. He said, you always have time for what you prioritize. You always have time for what you prioritize. And in his case, what he was saying was, I, I have time for my faith because I prioritize it. And I would encourage anybody listening out there who, who might feel like they have a dream or they have a calling, but they don't have time to, to execute on those visions. You, you have to set clear parameters and priorities for your life. And I think that if the president of the United States can set those parameters, you are, you are capable of it as well. And I believe you can do it and you can succeed. So you always have time for what you prioritize. Very well said. I said recently on the podcast that I really want to do back-to-back episodes with President Bush and President Carter. Two people who, from the outside looking in, are pretty serious about their faith and just you know come from very different political perspectives, right? Like I think that would be fascinating. But if we can't get President Bush, hey, at least we got the answer to that question. So thanks for asking it way back in two thousand eight, Nate. Uh, he already gave it to you. He already, he, already gave, he already gave it to you. He already gave it to us. It's like we had President Bush on the podcast today. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that, but, but, but the answer stands. That's what, that's what he said. Promoting this episode, to be crystal clear. <laughs> hey, Nate, I want to commend you just for the terrific work you do. Redemptive work you're doing in the world every single day and just for being open to the Lord's call in your life, to be his hands and feet and doing this redemptive work in the in the world of human trafficking. And thank you for your commitment to excellence. Uh, hey, guys, if you want to learn more about Nate, and the Joseph Project, you can find out more at josephproject.com. And hey, Nate, uh, before we sign off, tell us real quickly about this fundraising campaign you guys are running right now for the Joseph Project and how we can get involved. Yeah, you know, I appreciate you asking. And it, it's always it's always a, a little interesting to talk about funding. It's, it's, of course, not why the Joseph Project was started. But what, what you learn is that to broaden your impact, you need a degree of funding. So it, it certainly helps. And, uh, you know, Jordan, there, there's there's no specific campaign at the moment, but we're, we're always available online to, to receive if people feel led to give. It, it, it really does inspire us. And, and what it tells us is that you believe in the mission and you see the need and feel that it should be met just like we do. I can tell you that if you choose to give, uh, the, the money is well spent. It is changing survivors' lives and it also is, is making a big impact in the lives of the attorneys who are rendering the legal aid. So uh, it's beautiful all the way around and, and it's like rocket fuel to us if, if you feel called to, to do that. I love it. Well, I'm in on the mission. I've already given in the organization and I would encourage all of you to give as well. So, hey, Nate, thank you so much for hanging out with us on the Call to Mastery. Jordan, thank you again. It was an honor to join you today. I really wanted to put in the subject line for the show with special guest George W. Bush, but I didn't because that would have been shameless clickbait. 
But hey, in a roundabout way, we got the president to answer a question. Hey, by the way, if you're listening and you work for President Bush, give us a call. We really want to have him on the show. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe to The Call to Mastery so you never miss an episode in the future. If you're already subscribed, take 30 seconds right now. Please go leave a review of the podcast. That's how we get guests on the show. They go on iTunes. They look at how many ratings and reviews a podcast has. Trust me, I know because I do this as a guest on the other side of the microphone. So go leave a review so we can get President George W. Bush, right? And Jimmy Carter and all these other guests that we would love to have on the show. Hey, guys, thank you so much for listening. I love making this show for you. I'll see you next week.